You're listening to The Open Podcasts. And to the outstanding champions of sandwich, the Taylors, Vardens, Hagens and Cottons, add one more. Bill Rogers. Oh, you can see the tension falling away from his face. You know, from the Tom Morses to the Tom Watsons and Nicholases and Weisskopfs. Occasionally, I'll pick up the the jug and look at the names, and I'm kind of just blown away by being included in that cast of characters. In the game of golf. Friendships and memories are among the greatest rewards any player can achieve in the playing of the game. For golfers of the calibre of Bill Rogers, however, the memories made throughout a career in golf have not just led to a full life lived, but helped foster a period of play at the highest level that only a handful of players can ever have claimed to match. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, Rogers, with the help and encouragement of his friends and fellow professionals, cultivated a legacy that has and will stand the test of time. A legacy that includes one fine claret jug. And it's right in the middle. This is Tales of the Open. This is the story of Bill Rogers. Born in 1951 in Waco, Texas... Rogers grew up around a family of golfers. Rogers' father was from a military background, and while moving around a lot, Rogers grew up quickly and took a natural shine to the game thanks to his father and brothers. Well, I grew up in a, a military family. My father was in the Air Force. Uh, so uh, with that being the case, we lived all over the world, uh, Germany, Africa, uh, many places in the United States. And uh, I, was, I was born into a golf family. My father and brothers, I have two brothers, played golf. And in fact, my father and uh, middle brother were very good players. And, uh, you know, about the first time I put a golf club in my hand, which, is, uh, which was about the age of eight or nine, I was, uh, you know, having watched them and having just been around the game and exposed to it because of them, I could, I could kind of do it right off the, uh, right from the start. I was able to grip the club, never really actually remember them formally teaching me. I just, uh, I just could do it from the very start. And, uh, somehow or another, I inherited from them a competitive nature. And so kind of with that, I was, uh, I was ready, ready for the, all the testing that golf could put before me. And I did the standard, uh, junior golf beginning at age nine and loved to compete, loved to play. And, you know, as I uh, grew older and loved the challenge of, uh, school golf, which was, you know, reasonably competitive in high school. But, uh, that's where I began to think that I really, really would cherish uh, going to a, a university that had a good golf program and could develop my skills well enough to even uh, have the dream of reaching 
status of playing on the PGA golf tour. Rogers' desire to play the game at a higher level led him to join the University of Houston, which helped not only in his golf, but gifted Rogers lifelong friendships with Bruce Litsky, Ben Crenshaw, and Tom Kite. I actually met Bruce Litsky when we walked in uh, together at the University of Houston as freshmen, and then Ben Crenshaw, Tom Kite, they were at the University of Texas, of which we did many battles against them. But you know, they they grew to be uh, my very best friends, and uh, not only in the golf world, but uh, family-wise as well. The value of those friendships was vital in Rogers building confidence when first arriving on tour in 1975. Not only did we compete together, but you know the friendships uh, remained, and you know as we all kind of. Uh, arrived on the tour together, you know, it was kind of from a comfort level, it was important that you had friends and, you know, going through the same challenges, struggles that you were and say, with the dreams of being successful. And, uh, you know, so that was a, uh, that was a big part of kind of early tour life was to, you know, try to find your way and find some kind of comfort level uh, in a, you know, a highly competitive world, professional golf. And, so we were uh, pleased to have maintained not only our friendships out of college, but on our beginnings of the uh, PGA Tour. By 1980, Rogers was a PGA Tour winner, had already won tournaments on three continents, and had claimed the World Match Play Championship at Wentworth, alongside a top five finish at the US Open the previous year in 1979. But the man they called the Panther, coined by Litsky, had never played in the Open, and it was because of the advice of Crenshaw that Rogers made the trip to play in the 109th Open Championship at Muirfield. We were well aware uh, of the Open Championship and the importance of it, but there was absolutely financial concerns on a lot of the uh, American players. You know, a lot of players opted not to go because of the financial challenges, but Ben was always very encouraging about the style of golf and the type of golf, the people, the fans, and everything that uh, was embraced uh, about the Open Championship. So he really began a campaign to uh, encourage Bruce, Bruce and myself to play in the Open Championship at Muirfield uh, in 1980. and. Thank God we took took him up on it and, and arrived on the scene. Uh, had a wonderful week at Gray Walls and actually, uh, you know, I played reasonably well. Uh, obviously, that was Tom Watson's year, but I got a taste of it and it wasn't gonna. Uh, it really wet my appetite for beginning many years of playing in, in in the Open Championship. I loved everything about it. Rogers stayed at the iconic Grey Walls Hotel with many American players that week, and it was one of the world's best at the time, Tom Weisskopf, who provided Rogers with a moment of inspiration when watching the champion-elect, Tom Watson, preparing to claim his third claret jug. I played pretty well, and I think I had a reasonably good finish. I can't remember. Maybe it was in the top 25, maybe. But I can remember Tom Weisskopf was... Uh, all the Americans were staying at Gray Walls and uh, we were sitting there Sunday afternoon after we had finished and 
uh, he looked at me and said, come on, Bill, we're going to walk out by the behind the 18th green and watch, uh, you know, watch Tom Watson finish out on, on 18. So we walked out there and, uh, sure enough, it was the timing of it. Tom was coming up the 18th hole and, I remember Tom Wozkoff looking at me and saying, you know what, you have the ability to win this tournament just like Tom's getting ready to do. Oh, nice cozy way to finish. Watson down and just rolls this little tiddler in for a round of 69 today. You know, anytime you were validated somewhat by your peers or you know, the people you did professional golf life with, uh, of which Tom Weisskopf did at that point, you know, you, it was inspirational. As being a former Open Championship, he recognized uh, at that point enough uh, about my golf game and ability that he thought that, uh, you know, my style of play might one day uh, lend itself to being an Open Championship. And Turns out he was somewhat prophetic about that, actually. And it was a meaningful part, not only of really my uh, open championship career, but really golf as well. Like I said, it was you really took to heart any time one of your uh, peers validated that you were well-respected as a player. With Watson, Weisskopf, and the likes of Crenshaw, Rogers also remembers an incident on the Muirfield grounds that maybe didn't seem like such a good idea at the time. After the Tom winning the championship, all the Americans uh, were having a celebration dinner uh, at Gray Walls. And, you know, I think the story is well known that we went out on the golf course with, you know, the hickory shafted clubs and uh, Ben Crenshaw, somebody had given him a couple feathery balls and a lot. we went out and with a with all the Americans and several other people and played uh, number, I believe it was number 10 and 18, but uh, we weren't too well received by the secretary uh, because of it and, and kind of got, uh, everyone, including Tom himself, were, got scolded by the secretary. But uh, yeah, we were we were all the ugly Americans at that point. I, I remember feeling as a freshman uh, open player that, Gosh, I uh, we'd made a big mistake, but as we look back on it, it was quite fun, and uh, it was just kind of a part of our ongoing celebration, and uh, we we were we were quick to get over it. But it was a I think it was a well documented celebration in the in the uh, English and Scottish uh, tabloids the next day. A memorable experience at Rogers' first Open Championship preceded a season in 1981 that would go down as one of golf's greatest. The thought that it would become that, however, was incredibly far from Roger's mind just seven weeks into his campaign. Well, uh, you know, it was interesting, and I'd like to tell you there was kind of a short story to it, but there, it was a little more involved. But my, my career up until that point had a, uh, you know, I'd had a nice steady improvement uh, every year to, to, to some degree. And, you know, I was growing into uh, 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 being a, a pretty good, uh, successful uh, professional golfer. I mean, uh, tour player. And uh, I love the lifestyle. Uh, you know, my wife did. I had a great comfort with it. And my uh, goal and aspirations had never been 
to be uh, to to be a major championship winner, or I was quite comfortable in carving out a nice living. I had some success winning, uh, a, you know, some tournaments, and uh, no way did I see or in, entertain even remotely the idea of what uh, what happened in 1981. But the the beginning of the year had a quite a uh, interesting start. I played well in my first two events of the year in January, finishing fourth and seventh, and kind of, you know, just was brimming with confidence. But after the two nice finishes, I, I, I missed five cuts in a row. I, I began uh, being a little tentative with, you know, a few parts of the, my game, and, and it kind of uh, almost snowballed into a, a little bit of a panic. And uh, you know, a part of the life, uh, part of the tour life. I mean, you know, negotiating uh, the ups and downs and kind of the panic button was pretty close by. And I, you know, I was, I was really struggling. And I had a, a made for TV challenge match with Aseo a, a Aoki uh, in the Philippines. Uh, I'd, I'd beaten him in the world match play at, uh, at Wentworth in 1979, and uh, some people uh, in the Philippines had wanted us to play a challenge match there. So after these five cuts in a row, uh, I, I flew to the Philippines, and somehow or another, my game began to uh, come back. I kind of sensed it in that challenge match. I, you know, uh, not necessarily able to pinpoint it, but when I re returned back, I uh, my first event back in the states was the TPC players championship at Sawgrass and I really felt uh, my game coming back and you know to kind of then fast forward uh, not but a couple weeks later I won the Sea uh, Heritage Sea Pines tournament at Harbortown and then about a month after that I finished second in the US Open to David Graham and a month after that, you know, in July, I go to Royal St. George's. Having recalibrated his game and with a tour victory and a US Open runner-up finish under his belt, Rogers was high on confidence and arrived at Royal St. George's excited to play in the 110th Open Championship. Again, Rogers stayed alongside his close friends, as well as a former Open champion and fan favourite. Yeah, one of the beautiful things and a big part of tour life is, you know, occasionally you, uh, you know, you stayed in great places with great friends. And that was the case at Royal St. George's. We stayed all, uh, a lot of Americans, my Ben Crenshaw, uh, and Bruce Litsky, uh, being two of them. And there were a host of others as well as Tony Jacklin. He was with us, uh, stayed at Broome Castle, which was, I think in the neighborhood of 20 or 30 minutes away from Royal St. George's, but we just had a wonderful group. And, you know, when you have a comfortable setting and feel good about your golf game and you're around people you want to be around and, you know, the challenge of a major championship, that uh, sometimes that works to your credit. And it certainly did that week for me. Comfortable in his surroundings, Rogers was pleased with his preparation and ready to have a strong performance. His open challenge, however, was whiskers and just a few ticks of a second hand away from ending before it had even begun. Oh, big time. And, 
Yeah, by all accounts, I very easily could have missed my tee time. My caddy and I were on the putting clock uh, in plenty of time before my tee time, and both of us completely lost, uh, uh, you know, all all thought of tee time and where we were and what time it was. And had it not been, and I will never forget his name, John Whitbread, uh, and I've forgotten what magazine or, or newspaper he worked for, sports writer, walked out onto the putting clock and said, Bill, I, uh, I believe your tee time is right now. I believe you may be on the tee. And sure enough, uh, I looked and it's a pretty good, uh, pretty good walk from the practice green to the first tee and I looked over and I noticed that my group was on the tee box and my caddy and I had to sprint to the tee and had made it just in time. Had, had we been a minute more, uh, I would have, I would have missed my tee time and had John not come out there, I'm sure I would have missed it completely. So, um, good Lord was looking after Bill Rogers that day. <laughs> Rogers narrowly avoided missing his 8.22 morning tea time, but set about making amends with a solid opening round of 72 on a tough day. The weather, however, became far worse after Rogers had finished, and from the comfort of Broom Castle, he watched on as carnage rained down upon the sandwich links. On the increasingly windy first day, nobody breaks the par of 70. Well, I, drew, I had the good draw, and that uh, sometimes... Uh, you know, that's just what happens in tour golf. You know, you get the best of the draw and that morning was the best of the draw because in the afternoon it, uh, they had some rain squalls come through and some tough conditions and uh, a lot of the players really struggled, but that was a good thing to happen. And if you play in enough uh, major championships, you're going to have it go your way and then you're going to have it go the other way. But uh, I drew good that open week and Heck, I can remember being back at my room at Broome Castle and turning on the uh, the golf and watching some of the guys struggle in the afternoon with these tough conditions. And oh gosh, yeah, I was comfortable in my bed with my hot water bottle right up against me and all comfy and just happy as a little clam, as we say. One of the players Rogers would watch struggle was the three-time Open champion Jack Nicholas, who shot one of his worst ever rounds as a professional that day. The man everyone was still talking about here this morning at the start of the second round. And that man, of course, was Jack Nicholas after that extraordinary and disastrous 83 yesterday. It was. It was. Uh, I'll never forget, and I believe it was the 14th hole. Uh, he was way out in the weeds and uh, in the junk and slashing around with, you know, rain squalls, wind blowing, grass flying, and uh, he had a, a miserable first day. And But that was my first, you know, kind of viewing of how tough the conditions had gotten that afternoon. Members of Roger's household for the week were not faring badly either as Tony Jacklin played well in the morning conditions and Ben Crenshaw battled in the afternoon with a truly remarkable up and down from 60 yards away to sign for the same score his good friend Rogers had earlier in the round. Ben Crenshaw, who really is not too far behind, only two over par, and I've had a good look at the scoreboard above him, but he's in the bunker, short and left of the 
final green. And that's a magnificent shot. Well, that could go down as one of the great shots of the championship. On the following day, Crenshaw would sign for an early 67 to reach one under par for the championship and take an early second round lead. When Rogers teed off in the afternoon, however, he played superb golf. Well, now let's turn our attention to the American Bill Rogers, who, if you remember, won the World Match Play Championship at Wentworth a couple of years ago. Now, he was making significant progress rather later in the day. He started the day two over, went out in 33, that's two under par, then he birded the 12th, so now he stood one under par as joint leader with Job and Crenshaw. That very same Bill Rogers on the par 5 14th. If it's not lined too badly, this shouldn't be too tough a shot. Oh, there's a beauty. So Rogers will have that putt to take the outright lead in the championship. And up until the last few holes of the U.S. Open Championship, back there in late June, he was neck and neck with David Graham and George Burns and everybody was quite a bit in doubt as to who was going to come out on top. Becoming a very good major championship player. This is for the outright lead in the championship. There it is, Rogers. There's your leader, championship leader, two under par, Bill Rogers. Four under for today's round. Over his final few holes, Rogers would consolidate his position at two under par and faced his final approach into the 18th. At two minutes past six on the second evening, Bill Rogers from Texas comes to the 36th hole. Oh, and what a beautiful shot. And that putt is for a round of 65. To break the course record set earlier today by Jack Nicklaus. Well, Bill Rogers is going to putt first, and this putt is for a round of 65. Certainly the greatest single round in Bill Rogers' career, if he can hold us. Is it short? Good line, maybe a little bit. So it's going to be a round of 66. It's going to put Bill Rogers in the lead in the championship with scores of 72, 66, 1, 3, 8. Very happy young man. And there we are with Bill Rogers of the United States leading two under par, one stroke ahead of Nick Job of Great Britain and Ben Crenshaw of America, the German Bernhard Langer just two strokes behind. One year after Crenshaw convinced Rogers to come to play in the Open, the two friends and roommates found themselves in the final group on Saturday in golf's original major. So, the third round. You know, as I, uh, you'd think that that would be, you know, just a great comfort level, which certainly, you know, we, we enjoyed one another playing and whatever, but you know, uh, uh, you're, you are there um, competing and although it's a very comfortable pairing and Ben didn't have his best day and I had one of my very best days playing and in some respects kind of uh, not that you're paying that much attention to what your opponent be a friend or, or otherwise uh, you, you have your work to do and you're, you're 
concentrating on what you're doing and not uh, you know, your own, in your own little world as well. But uh, it was unfortunate he didn't have one of his best days and uh, I, I played very well that day. So I, it, was a, it was a good pairing for me to have. Well, very early on, uh, as the leaders went out, Ben Crenshaw began to drop away. He made a really bad start and from being one under, he went to two over. And Nick Job, fairly early on, he dropped a shot as well. So at this point, Bill Rogers was now four strokes clear in the lead. Early on Saturday, Job and Crenshaw began to falter. Rogers, however, stood firm and left himself nearly 70 feet for birdie on the par four eighth hole to take a four-stroke lead. That's travelling, that's travelling. Oh, my goodness, and sure enough... Well, 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 well. A putt to rival that of Terry Wogan's in the winter. That really was a very, very long putt indeed. Rogers continued to play well and approaching the par 3 16th, held a commanding lead in the championship. The American, however, was keen to put his foot down. This is Bill Rogers, the championship leader. The whole 165 yards. Splendid shot. Rogers with this for a two, this to go five under. Looks good. Oh Texacana, Texas. Bill Rogers, five under. After signing for a third round 67, Rogers now had a significant advantage. With a lead of five, the Texan felt that the Open was his to win, or his to lose. I played enough tour golf, been in the in the you know kind of in the heat enough to understand the emotion of all of it. But I you know felt pretty reasonably comfortable, as comfortable as you could. But I'd never owned a five-shot lead in any kind of significant golf tournament. So with that, uh, you know, as a player, you could easily say that it was certainly my championship to win with five shots in the lead. And it certainly was mine to, uh, to blow. You know, I'd be uh, probably not truthful if I didn't say there were new thoughts and emotions, but uh, I felt so good about the way I was playing uh, and, you know, I didn't pro project out, you don't dwell on, uh, you know, what could be. You, you very much want to stay in the moment and what you're doing, even if that uh, is before the round itself. I'm, you know, we had, like I said, a comfort level and everybody staying together. And, you know, we were just enjoying stories and the fellowship of, uh, heck, like I said, Tony Jacklin, we all... Had, had, a, had a wonderful time, and that probably uh, was a good place for me to be uh, owning a lead before the last round of the Open. The final day of this Open Championship was all set up to be the American Bill Rogers Day, but the question still had to be answered. Would he falter, or would somebody behind him come with a really determined challenge? Arriving on Sunday, Rogers knew that something was different. This was the final day of the Open Championship. 
and it was not an ideal start. This is the final game of the 110th Open Championship. On the tee, Bill Rogers. Oddly enough, you know, I could sense, even before I teed off, there was a there was a little bit different feeling about uh, an emotion about what was getting ready to happen about the last round. I felt like I'd uh, probably drifted back from a full aggression and, and just letting it fly, which was the case for the first three days, just, you know, with super confidence to maybe uh, entertaining a little bit of more of a, a defensive type posture uh, as I approached the round. And I could sense that it was not the same, you know, same type uh, feeling that I'd had the first three rounds. But be that as it may, uh, it didn't throw me off. I was quite, quite excited about starting the day. And I could feel certainly through the first uh, six holes that I was a little tentative. And uh, I'd, I'd played the first six holes I believe I was one over and uh, I, I was not a player that liked to look at scoreboards and I wasn't in fact doing that the last day, but I knew that being one over that probably uh, there were maybe a few players that might've moved a little closer. Also going for a birdie, Bernard Langer. Yes. That's more like it. One under for Langer. Three away from Rogers. The seventh hole, which proved to be one of the easier holes of the week, was a, a par five, and I felt like, you know, it was a chance to get a shot back, and it was a reachable par five, but I didn't uh, hit a good enough drive to reach, and... There's Rogers' problem. That's the shot he's got left, but being out of the bunker, at least it, he can get on the green. As it turns out, I hit my third shot, uh, approach shot, over the green. No. No. Well, shouts are four. Oh, and he's miles away. He's over there somewhere. Well, he must have got a little bit thin, I suspect. And that's right. You gentlemen with the pipe, keep him away. Don't let him tread on it. No. Nope. That's his moment of glory for the championship. So, Rogers, with the problems here, thinned his third shot right through, landed behind the scoreboard, the uh, referee's rule book is out, and uh, he's going to get a free drop over to the uh, left-hand side, but still a very tricky little chip coming down a bank, all sorts of uh, rough ground ahead of him, and uh, so much now just depends on the lie he gets when he drops. So he can still get a par, though, with a good chip. Hit a very poor chip. Back, well, he's failed to reach the green and uh, things getting worse and worse for the leader. And a, uh, another poor chip. This four or five. So unless he has a good chip, he's going to drop two shots. Got a bit of positive thinking. He's had the pin taken out. Well, quite a good one, but not quite dead missed my putt and I made double bogey on the seventh hole. Oh, it's, oh, that was a really, oh, he's, the nerves getting at him now. That's a terrible seven. And his lead is cut to one shot. 
all of a sudden I was three over after the first seven holes and now without looking at scoreboards and uh, having to really check on what was going on, I knew that there were a lot of people, uh, in particular Bernard Langer and uh, Raymond Floyd, who were very much back in the mix of the of uh, being right in the middle of the golf tournament. I think, in fact, they were both within a shot uh, of the lead now. But uh, I was able to gather my uh, emotions and my poise and composure. And on the eighth tee box, I understood that, you know, uh, I was not going to concede uh, playing poorly that first seven holes that I was still playing well. I knew that you know, I still had uh, had confidence in my golf game, and uh, I was able to pull myself together with that tee shot on the eighth hole, which was very important. And I can remember hitting a three iron into uh, the green and having a might have been as much as a 50 or 60 feet. And leaving himself an extremely difficult putt. Now, this one is a 20-yarder, but after the first five yards, he's got a mound to go right over directly in his line and he'll really be doing very well indeed to get down here in two. And hit a good lag putt. Well, that's a beautiful putt from 20 yards, and it's only about two feet short. We did, however, see him miss one of about this distance at the seventh. So he's got to just pop this one right in the middle. I think three and a half, I don't know that it was four feet, three and a half feet, and I made that putt. That's a better, right in the middle. So Rogers makes par eight. And it was, uh, and I had putted good for the, for, the, for the week, and I was very confident in my putting, but that was a very important two putt, uh, and had I missed that three, three and a half footer, um, I think that that would have, allowed uh, some emotion and maybe maybe let the demons in there. But uh, in fact, a couple of weeks after that, I'll never forget Seve Ballesteros. We were playing somewhere and he came up to me and he said, congratulations, but uh, that two putt on the eighth hole was where you won the championship. And I, uh, I think I agreed with him, you know. After salvaging par on the eighth with an excellent two putt, Rogers faced a birdie putt on the ninth hole to go back to three under par for the championship. And Rogers there with his second shot, obviously must be feeling a little more settled now in view of the previous hole. Has a stroke of 140 yards, the wind blowing off the left, and I would think an eight-hand shot for him. And that's the right line to start it off on. Could that be the one which changes the tide? That is a really great shot and an almost certain birdie. Three under once again. Now riding on the crest of a wave after overcoming his biggest challenge of the round so far, Rogers looked to press home his advantage. This time on the 10th. And he's got the game back in gear again. That's another superb shot. Very holdable putt for a three. Back to Rogers, 10th for a birdie three. Anyway, I pulled it together and birdie two of the next three holes and I kind of righted the ship, so to speak. 
Very slow, small backswing, but he's got it rolling. Two birdies in a row for Rogers, and he will be feeling much better now. Two good threes. A bogey would follow on the 11th hole, before a key moment on the 12th. Rogers' ball at the 12th in there, and look at this one. Well, he had two birdies in a row, dropped a stroke at the long, short hole, the 11th, and now he's just peppered one almost into the hole. Brilliant. Rogers live for a three, and he's in. James tapped his in, took six. Rogers got a three. Three-shot swing there at the 12th. After returning to four under for the championship and just one over for his day, Rogers had re-established a healthy lead and was a model of consistency down the stretch, making par upon par to consolidate his position. It was on the 17th fairway when Rogers first dared to dream about the famed claret jug. Well, you never really, uh, really let your guard down. Uh, you know, as part of the learning process of playing golf for a livelihood, you you never never give in or concede that uh, you have the you, you have it in hand. But I would tell you in the middle of the 17th fairway, I drove the ball well on 17 and Bernard Langer uh, was on the 17th green. And I knew that he had been one of the players that had been close. And I, again, I hadn't looked at a scoreboard, but I felt like I was in, in, in very good shape. But I, I uh, watched him miss a short putt which uh, he in bogey the hole. And I kind of felt like uh, that he, he was the closest player to me and that, uh, you know, that I, I felt a little bit like uh, that was, obviously I wasn't pulling against him, but it didn't hurt my feelings that he had made a five <laughs> on the hole. So I, I did feel like, uh, you know, that was a little bit more of an opening to, you know, that, uh, and, and a little bit more of a of, of buffer on my lead at that point. On the final hole, Rogers could enjoy his walk, knowing full well that just a year after Ben Crenshaw convinced him to make the trip and Tom Weisskopf told him he had what it takes, he was about to be crowned the champion golfer of the year for 1981. In amongst there is Bill Rogers somewhere, but I think he's got some of the lads in blue looking after him. Here they come. There's one of them through. Let the referee through, please. Bill Rogers. Oh, you can see the tension falling away from his face. Oh gosh, it's overwhelming, and I tell people that uh, you know, and and the feeling is so wonderful. It's something that you want to capture and you want more of, no no doubt about it. And I knew that the second that I'd hold out that last putt, and it's right in the middle. To win, my life as I knew it would never be the same. And uh, there's two feelings. There's overwhelming emotion of the moment, but there's also overwhelming relief that you've done it. And those two colliding together uh, is pretty significant. 
What was it like coming up the 18th? It's the most fantastic thing I've ever witnessed and easily the biggest thrill of my life. Sometimes that leads to some pretty strange emotion that, uh, of course, that's what people come to see. They want to see how players win and how they lose and how they react. Uh, hopefully, I uh, proved to, out to be a, a worthy Open champion for the for the uh, the British fans, and I think I think that turned out to be the case. I was a proud champion. Rogers had triumphed by four strokes over Bernhard Langer in just his second Open Championship, with a total of 276 strokes. And as described by the late Sir Sean Connery, Rogers had written his name in the history books. And to the outstanding champions of Sandwich, the Taylors, Vardens, Hagens and Cottons, add one more. The winner of the gold medal and the holder of the silver trophy, Bill Rogers. After the Open in 1981, Rogers felt a need to prove he was worthy of the mantle of champion golfer of the year. In what turned out to be one of the most historic seasons in global golfing history, Rogers ensured he truly was the world's best player in 1981, accumulating the most points in the unofficial Mark McCormick golf rankings. Uh, no, no doubt. Uh, there, no doubt. I, I continued to play well. And, you know, that next tournament where they announce you as the Open champion, gosh, I want to tell you that for a good long while sent a chill right up my spine uh, every time. And, gosh, I mean, like I said, I'd entered a new realm, a new kind of uh, level of being a tour player, a PGA Tour player. But I was fortunate to continue to play confidently and uh, however, somewhat of the burden of, and the pressure uh, of self-inflicted, obviously, of now you're the Open champion, now what do you do? Well, you better keep playing well and, and validate what you just did, you know. And, uh, heck, I was able to do it and do it well and uh, just had, again, back to that it, it word, magical. I hope hate to overuse it, but it... Uh, you know, continued to win and win confidently. So uh, it was it, it was it was a wonderful ride. Seven wins across four continents in 1981, including the Open Championship, made Rogers a worldwide star. A man used to traveling the world, he would continue to do so for the next few years, as everybody wanted a piece of the Open Champion. By the time 1983 rolled around. Rogers had come close to winning the US Open once more and was ready to take another crack at golf's original major. Rogers would eventually finish tied for eighth, but it was a shot in the first round at Royal Birkdale that cemented the legacy of the man known as the Panther. Bill Rogers, second at the 17th, par five of 520 yards, and Rogers reckons he can get up in two. This looks like the American shuttle coming back into orbit. And that's a really wonderful shot. Oh! A very rare, a very rare beast indeed. An albatross two. At the 17th hole. An albatross in the open. Only the third in 112 playings of the event after young Tom Morris in 1870 and his fellow American Open champion Johnny Miller in 1972. A shot to go down in history 
in just Rogers' fourth ever Open. As Rogers' globetrotting lifestyle continued, the Waco native soon made a decision almost unique in professional golf for a world-class player and major champion. In 1986, Rogers played in his final Open and officially retired from professional golf in 1988 at the age of 36. Uh, burnout is probably an accurate word. I, I went for it. I had many, many, many opportunities come my way, and I went for almost all of them. And I just wore myself out, uh, spread myself too thin. Uh, but uh, those were choices I made, and I didn't uh, take care, uh, good care of myself in terms of time management. That wasn't a strong suit of mine. And I just uh, spread it thin and went went for it and kind of, it wasn't so immediate, but the, the evolution of it, it really took its toll. And uh, I lost the enamor of uh, the beauty of the game and just competing and really kind of got to a real dark place in terms of being a, a successful tour professional. And... Uh, but anyway, that was my story. That's how it happened. I have no regrets. I, uh, I had a wonderful 14-year career, and obviously the highlight uh, being an Open champion, a, a Ryder Cup member, uh, and, you know, a lot of, lot of successful international and national plays. So I uh, have no regrets about it, and, you know, that was a little, uh, just a little aspect of my life story, and I, uh, I cherish it. A victim of burnout, Rogers took a step away from the tour to spend more time with his loved ones. The Panther became a golf coach at a club in San Antonio, before coaching at the University of Texas for many years to come. Now, having just turned 69 years of age, Rogers has been away from professional tour golf for 32 years and is delighted with how things turned out. Heck, I'm a proud grandfather. I have three grandchildren, lovely wife that uh, is a wonderful mother and grandmother. And we've been blessed plenty, uh, have been afforded much by all the things that golf has issued in. Um, heck, I, I was born into a wonderful family, um, have wonderful friends, have had a lot of important people come into my life uh, before I started the tour and after I played the tour and everywhere in between. And I value the uh, gift of fellowship. Uh, God has been good to me and wonderful to my family. Many, many, many uh, wonderful friends as a result of having played this beautiful game of golf. And uh, there's hardly, I'd tell you truthfully, a week that goes by that uh, somehow or another, I'm not reminded of uh, the Open Championship and being an a, a Open Champion winner. Rogers still loves the game of golf, and despite not playing professionally for over three decades, he returns to the Open often to celebrate the history of golf's original major. He can still play the game to an exceptionally high standard too. Still able to kind of get it around some and uh, love to play, uh, love to, you know, sometimes practice and, but, but only on my terms and, you know, my, uh, very sporadically, heck, I might play this week once and not play for another couple weeks. And anyway, golf still, uh, in a lot of different respects, a big part of my life. 
Uh, now, I would uh, tell you that I took Nicholas's, Jack Nicholas's charge in moving forward. I have moved forward a, a set of tees. I'm going to have to tell you that. But uh, actually, the other day, I just turned 69 in September. Uh, and uh, the other day, I shot 66. I, of course, I made every putt, and, you know, but I played, played well. And it's on my home golf course and uh, familiar territory. But uh, that was really, it was a, it was a nice, nice thing. No champion golfer since 1964 has played in fewer Open Championships than Bill Rogers. Coming over to play in the Open late after being convinced by his close friend Ben Crenshaw and retiring from the game early due to burnout, Rogers played in seven Open Championships from 1980 to 1986. Yet there are perhaps few players who love and appreciate what the Open Championship means to them more than Rogers. A man whose family, whose friends and whose passion and relationship with the game transcends just professional golf, Rogers captured the true spirit of the Open, and he continues to capture the imagination of those who remember his world-class play so fondly. The Open Championship, of course you can't uh, not think of it and think of the history of the game, a game born out of that beautiful place of the world, the British Isles, and just the people that have gone before me as champions. And But, you know, more than the Open Championship, it's been about the fans that and the people that and the RNA that have supported and made it into really kind of the world's championship is the way almost you could think of it. But I think of, uh, gosh, the you know, from the Tom Morrises to the Tom Watsons and Nicholases and Weisskopfs and Jones and Sneeds. And, you know, just the thought, uh, occasionally I'll pick up the, the jug and look at the names and I'm kind of just blown away by being included in that cast of characters uh, that have won the Open Championship. So it's very meaningful to me. And like I said, maybe uh, so much so that like I commented, it's hardly a week goes by that I'm not reminded of it in some form or fashion. You know, somebody wanting a flag signed or a card signed or uh, being recognized as the champion golfer of the year. This has been an original audio production from The Open.